I'm Matt Swain, and you're listening to the Reimagining Communications podcast, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges facing companies on the road to optimizing their communications for the future. Today, we have something special in store for you. Broadridge recently hosted a media roundtable to discuss digital transformation with leaders from a few different industries. Broadridge's chief digital officer and guest on episode six, Rob Krugman, moderated the session. He was joined by three distinguished panelists. They included Maya Drayson, former head of marketing, culture division at Condé Nast, and current SVP progress marketing at Time. She was also co-founder of the Webby Awards. Maya was joined by Patrick McCullough, vice president of strategy for Hallmark's Business Connections, as well as Thomas Clem, who is the global head of digital and COO of the Americas for Deutsche Bank Wealth Management. Let's listen in. So the word digital, and specifically the word digital communications, could mean a lot of different things depending upon your role and what you're trying to accomplish. You know, so at Broadridge, for example, we look at digital communications as how do we take the communications that we deliver on behalf of our clients and make them more effective, right? How do we enable a bill to become more than a bill, become an actual touch point with customers that facilitates engagements, you know, maybe reduces call center volume, maybe gets people to pay faster. In the financial services space, a statement becomes a way of reinforcing brand value and demonstrating the value that maybe an advisor brings to a relationship. So I thought a good place to start would be to ask each of our panelists a little bit about when you think about digital communications, what does it mean to you and your company? So Maya, why don't we kick it off with you? You know, this question is so interesting to us because we're storytellers. We tell the best stories in the world. And so digital communications to us is really just another platform, another way to tell a story more than it is anything else. That said, it has its advantages, which we love, which is, you know, it's customizable, it's editable. You think of a print magazine, you used to print it, and then that was it. So that's kind of nice. And most importantly to most people is it's measurable. Absolutely. Well, it's an interesting point you just said, you know, you kind of brought in the print word, and so I'll throw kind of out okay. there as we talk about this, is that the concept of digital communications really is a concept of omnichannel communications, where print is just one of those channels, and they all work together. Correct. Make sense? And it works best when they all work together. Absolutely. Absolutely. Patrick? Yeah, it's it's funny that that's where we started, because that's my opening line was going to be, I'm, an, I'm here to convince you that a Hallmark reading card is a digital communication tool, which uh, it, I promise that it okay. is. The premise of your question, I think, is accurate, and it's what, the, what is digital communication to everyone's business. For Hallmark Business Connections, admittedly, um, our, our core product suite for all of Hallmark and for the B2B division is still rooted in physical products, generally. A greeting card as a direct mail format, you can think of it that way. What's changed over the years, though, it, what underpins it is the amount of digital innovation technology data that goes into the development of that product, the enablement and the digital commercialization of it. Um, so I, I could speak to some different examples as we go on today, but just to kind of get your imagination flowing, if you will, uh, think about a greeting card used to be something you'd buy off of a shelf and you had a big assortment and then you had to write on it and you had to put a stamp on it and go through this whole process. Today, the digital innovation and that goes into it is how do we form the creative based on data, right? Data enabling how we develop the product, data enabling how someone accesses the product, how it gets fulfilled, writing, you know, writing a personal message on it, putting a stamp on it, all of these kinds of things, uh, and making it easy, efficient, and accessible, both in the business space as well as more broadly in the consumer world. Thankfully, Hallmark is in a position where our products are still highly in demand, right? And so we're not facing a, a moment of we have to transform the business from a product level, otherwise we're gonna be in big danger. But it's more about we have all these great new tools, especially in the commercialization realm, that we can use to transform how people access the product and, 
like I said, the data that goes into it, those kinds of things. And um, it's a transformation. It's been ongoing for a number of years, but it's accelerated dynamically in the last several years. Um, and it's, it's opening up new horizons, and it's an exciting time. So I think for wealth management, digital transformation is also a very, very fascinating topic. But if we go back to the purpose of a wealth manager itself, you have to think about uh, it's really about to help a client to uh, create, to grow and protect uh, basically the, I would say, the, the financial lifetime achievements of a client. And uh, this is only done being in concrete example, for example, giving the first uh, loan to an entrepreneur who builds, uh, who builds his own company. In a liquidity event, helping, for example, to facilitate this liquidity event and, and basically allowing the client to change of mind in terms of what he can do in the future, what opportunities he should go after. But also very important is uh, the generational wealth transfer, really. It's, and, and if you look at these touch points, it's often the case that the advisor, which of course is the old school communication, becomes the sometimes the most important and trusted person of, uh, uh, of a family. Uh, and this is just so so important to notice, and this is also why we decided Deutsche Bank. However, at the same time, we realize, of course, how customer behaviors are changing, and how the client demand is, of course, changing also on uh, digital communication and digital uh, digital channels. But this is also why we decided we need a advisor-centric, advisor-focused digital strategy which supports the advisors and then basically enables new ways of digital communication. Absolutely. And, and what, what we've seen doing a lot of work in the financial services space as well is that putting that advisor in the center and demonstrating that every communication that comes from a firm is an opportunity. It's it, often a failed opportunity in the past because they're just, we have to send this out, let's just get it out the door. But if you do recognize it's an opportunity to facilitate a communication and reinforce brand value, it, it heightens the value the advisor brings to the relationship and the brand itself. It, it makes sense? Agree. Yeah. And uh, it's also very interesting because if you look at the overall client population that we have today, and that's not only Deutsche Bank wealth management, but global wealth management, the, the two thirds of global wealth management clients are above 60, yeah. right? However, we see these clients coming, uh, asking for go paperless, uh, give me 24-7 access to my information. Mm -hmm. um, I want to have the ideas ready at my fingertips. And uh, this is really, uh, at the end, also the huge opportunity. For example, part of the digital, this is also why we started to build a digital channel, which allows, of course, to do all of that, right? To provide the clients exactly what they asked for. We launched in Germany, in Asia, in Europe. And uh, it's really about the going to paperless, but it's also, for example, take relevant market information, our chief investment officer information, which the client starts to carry in his pocket, in his, in his e-banking app, and has available day to day. And this makes the huge difference, because people didn't want to have the printed materials, the irregular reach outs anymore, but this is really where the trend is going. Absolutely. I think that's so interesting, though, because we have insights that show, you know, you, we all think that it's younger people who want to use these digital technologies, but the reality is those digital technologies are driven by this, and we all have those, and then they change our expectations of how, they make everything more efficient, and they change our expect, everybody's expectations yep. of how things are going to happen, and so while you may start by targeting a millennial, for example, the whole culture moves in that direction, and I think that that's often missed. Well, it's also interesting missed. when you look at personas of people, because you often find that 70-year-olds can act just like a 20-year-old, yes. and a 20-year-old can act just like a 70-year-old, right? So there's no rhyme or reason. I, I do think what's interesting is the simplicity of communications. Exactly. Right, and that we used to send all of this data 
And I think what most people are finding is that that's overwhelming. And if you put it in bite-sized pieces that are relevant to the recipient, it could drive a lot of value. It's about utility, right? Yep. Different, you, the, you can give the same piece of data or the same touch point or whatnot to different types of generations. We'll stick on this example in the Wealth Advisory. Mm -hmm. And different generations, I think, are going to find different utility for whatever that touch point is going to be and are going to yep. act differently, right? So it, it's not about... Omnichannel also doesn't mean singular strategy for all, right? I mean, we get, we're starting not. to get into this segmentation <laughs> conversation, but it doesn't mean that one party likes it better than the other. It's just about utility. So let's jump, kind of continue that conversation. We'll go into a little bit around digital disruption, right? Because I think in each of our industries, digital disruption means a little bit of different things. So Maya, why don't we start with you? You know, the news industry is interesting in that media in general has evolved quite a bit probably over the last you know, 20 years, if yeah. we specifically look over the last five years, it's kind of completely different than what it was before. Um, what's your philosophy on how these new services kind of fit into the overall strategy of what you're trying to do? You know, if you think about Omnichannel, how do you balance those tools working together so that you really can effectively touch your consumers and the people you're trying to get to read? Well, I think, I mean, I think Patrick just said yeah. it, right? Yeah. Omnichannel does not mean a single strategy. And I think the mistake that is always made is that when a new platform comes along, everyone basically ports whatever they were doing on the old platform onto the new platform, us as well. So we t told stories this way in print, so we try and tell them that way online. They don't exactly work that way. And it takes us a little bit of time to figure out the best format or model for that new platform. And so I think that or it's just the coming up with, with the different strategies. As far as the disruption, I love that you start with news because um, while we have some you know, kind of news-facing brands, I do think that it's interesting that news suffered first in our industry, I think, because Craigslist and um, and just how timely they were, that they were easily disrupted, like that you could get the information every minute of every day, so therefore, whether it's cable TV or social or whatever. And uh, But I, they're also recovering first, which I think is interesting, right? You see the Financial Times, the New York Times, the Washington Post, all really starting to find their way through consumers, through diversified revenue streams. And I think the diversified revenue stream is really at the heart of that. And, and when you see it, you know, I, I look at your portfolio, right? There's Wired and there's Vanity Fair, two very different types of magazines. Yes. Each go about it a little bit differently? I'm assuming they do, because again, you're trying to reach a specific relevancy with your customer. They do, obviously, the relevancy with the customer. I'd actually, if you don't mind, like to talk about Wired and The New Yorker real quickly. Fair because enough. Yep. I think, you know, The New Yorker both have actually sort of similar audiences, you know, thought literacy suite, but very different approaches. But the thing about The New Yorker that's so fascinating is it's 76% consumer revenue. They pay $160 a year for that subscription. That magazine delivers a level of quality really and insight that they can't get anywhere else and so and they're they love it whether and you know i remember watching the good place and seeing a level of hell where they're stacked up in your corner because you can't read them fast enough yep. <laughs> but you know but they also are a badge in that way even if you don't read them to have the new yorker around you shows that you're really smart sure. so and wired people are really smart too but they're digitally first i mean wired started as a magazine in 93 had a website in 94 had the creative the first banner ad with AT&T. So Wired has from the beginning been print and digital and driven those ways. Condé Nast bought the magazine, didn't buy the digital piece at front. It was run by Lyco, so it always kind of went on a very digital tangent and came back and has been a model, I think, for others. One of the lessons there is the value of the content is what really drives the viewership or the participation. Yes, I will try not to yeah. say that too many times, but, that, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that is the main message. Yeah. So Patrick, we talk about Hallmark, and I think a lot of us think about greeting cards. But when we think about the transformation of how 
you know, it's really interesting. I think there's a print and a digital aspect that have to right. work together there. Can you talk a little bit about that? So in the in the greeting card space, and I'm sure no one in here is an expert in the greeting card space, so I'll I happily give you a quick primer <laughs> on that category of the retail world. But so I, I think roughly 20 years ago, if you would have asked this question about digital disruption and greeting cards, everyone would have said e-cards. Yeah. E-cards are the big thing, and, and they're going to totally kill greeting cards and yada, 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 which never came to pass. Uh, for a number of reasons, the core one being that the emotional connection of an e-card is not the same as a physical greeting card. It doesn't create it. And then a little bit more subliminal, the exchange of a greeting card is really a critical part of why it's an important product and you're giving it to someone as well as receiving it. And when you do that with an e-card, you lose a lot of that emotional connection. So it, it never really worked. And for the most part, I think the digital disruption that's happened in the greeting card space broadly has been the consumer traffic patterns, shopping patterns, those kinds of things, access to the product and why people buy it. In the Hallmark Business Connection space and what we do in B2B, we're kind of part consulting company, part direct marketing agency. It's you know, how you can think of us. I'll be totally honest, our phones ring off the hook about the greeting card product. They want the physical <laughs> product, not the e-card or any other digital product, primarily because there's been a lot of crowding and a lot of digital channels, and they're trying to find ways to, to break out and, and differentiate. But it doesn't mean that there's not digital innovation, and I can give you a couple different examples if that's helpful. In the business connection space and what we do in, in HBC, uh, a, an example is we, we developed this software product called Customer Care doesn't matter what it's called, but it's functionally an online software platform that is built for people like customer service representatives or retail associates, so mobile optimized, where after you have an interaction with the customer, you can really quickly, in a matter of seconds, choose a greeting card, have the customer's data already be populated there due to integrations, have the sentiment, the personal message inside of it already be pre-written, because well, Hallmark, I think we know how to do that pretty well, and it gets mailed automatically from our facilities, so you don't have to worry about physical stamps and writing and all that kind of stuff. You know, literally a matter of 20 to 30 seconds. So imagine a retail and a retailer associate in Nordstrom clienteling with a client they see all the time and doing that after they have an interaction, or a customer service person at Comcast following up when you've called for the fifth time and yelled at them because your cable gets, get, keeps getting shut off or you're having IT issues. It's an example of how we've taken that product and I tried to make it more accessible and tried to commercialize it in a different way to make it uh, a little bit more impactful. And Hallmark has done the same thing in, in several different spaces. Yeah. Uh, in the greeting card space, we just launched a shoebox app. I don't know if anyone's a shoebox card buyer. It's, it's the humor line, but yeah. same kind of principle. Pick and choose your card, mail it automatically. The retail division has what they call Crown Rewards, which is a digital rewards platform. It's actually in its 25th anniversary this summer, but that's what drives a lot of our retail success and foot traffic. Uh, and then the Hallmark Channel, hopefully everyone's a Hallmark Channel viewer, <laughs> one of the few channels that's still growing ratings and viewership, even with subscriber declines in cable, launched Hallmark Movies Now in 2017, which is the Netflix of the Hallmark media universe. Has all of our content library for many years and also has new exclusive programming, which is, a, again, it's meant to supplement it, but also start to evolve the business, and it's done significantly well. And like I said, the core products within Hallmark are the same, and they're physical products by and large, and they're yep. traditional products, but the underpinning of the businesses is entirely digital. The data and the intelligence that goes into delivering it, the commercialization element of it, certainly. And, and uh, I'd say, I just my example on Hallmark Movies Now, and that starting in 2017, is, I think, evidence of the acceleration in the last couple of years that the business has seen universally in a move towards digital, and it's, it's only continuing. At one point, the conversation turned to a discussion about disruption in the financial services space. So, Thomas, if we think about now kind of the financial services space, you know, I think that a lot of people, when they think about fintech, they're focused on payments. The reality is, yes, there's a lot of disruption happening in the payment space, 
in the investment space, in the wealth space, there's a huge amount of disruption happening probably over the last two years. And so as you think about you know, robo-advisors and new models and free trading and all these other things, I think it, it really requires firms to figure out how to highlight the advantage of an advisor relationship and what they bring and to continue to engage that from a communications perspective. Mm. How do you guys think about that? Yeah, a couple of thoughts on that one. First of all, I, I consider fintechs also as an incredible source of inspiration, right, mm -hmm. of what is what is going on, what you can do. And we try to find, uh, let me summarize three points, uh, how, we, how we try to deal with this. So number one, we also at Deutsche Bank globally, we established digital, uh, basically digital labs, uh, which we have in the Silicon Valley, we have in New York, in London, in Singapore. Uh, it's a designated group of people who helps business divisions to connect with fintechs, right, yeah. and to understand what is going on, what is going on in the market. And also if there are specific business ideas, there's the opportunity to very, very quickly engage with the team and also figure out, okay, what fintechs are available and can help you on that journey. The second one is we have, of course, also back to the inspiration point, you, you end up in a situation where either you are already working on something similar and you don't really, you, you don't really need the help. Second one, it's an usually an incredible opportunity also to partner up uh, with a fintech because there are only very few fintechs who really want to do it on their own. Right? Yep. You see many of them wanting to provide the service, offer the service, partner with the bank, etc. Robo-advisor, it's a big, big change. in uh, it's, it, it has been a big trend. It's a hugely growing trend. And there we decided to build our own solution. So we have a solution in place in our home market called Robin, which is risk-engineered robo-advisor. And uh, of course, there are many robo-advisors out there who, who uh, manage your assets uh, in a typical asset allocation way. They swap it every two, three months. What we have developed, however, is something which is really looking at in the asset classes at risk indicators, so value at risk, for example. Yep. And if limits are broken on a daily basis, you immediately uh, swap the portfolio on the same day. So these things have been also growing very, very successfully, of course. How to, the, the the one thing is about seeing this and doing something about it, but you at the end have to have to get your employees trained and you have to get it out to the clients, and we are investing a lot into really training our employees about employees about the impact and and basically about the developments that we do, because back to the the physical relationship between advisor and the client, if the advisor doesn't feel comfortable to promote this tool, it's a it's it's a problem, and there we are uh, investing really really significantly into into training our employees to do that. Perhaps also uh, last but not least, very important is I think to look at how to at the end get to the, get it to the clients and stay connected with our clients, and there we do a lot also in the millennial space. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. As you talk about communications, one of the things that I've been working a lot with our teams about is the kind of the focus on outcomes versus the specific tangible thing that we're trying to do, right? Like, what are we trying to achieve through a communications program and kind of work your way backwards from there, which often then leads to what data do we need to collect to analyze the effectiveness? Because you can start to really put value around a communications program, right? A communications program is not simply distributing a bunch of stuff out there hoping it gets to someone. A communications program can you know, increase the value that you present to that customer, drive net promoter score benefit, reduce call center volume, get people to pay. And you know, one of the things that we've been thinking about is creating almost a scorecard around that where you can go in and say, how do you measure the effectiveness of communication? I think the marketing side has done that very, very well for a very long time. But when it comes to people who are already your customers, it can sometimes be difficult because you've already my customer and we can see how much money they're spending, but there's a lot of other things to measure. So are you guys investing in building systems that really look at how the communications or the products that you distribute to consumers 
are used and leveraged. We have slightly different customers. Yep. I mean, I have, we have two customers, really. We have the consumer who, the audience who reads what our editors put out all the time. And then we have the, our brands who work with us to get their messages yep. out in the world. I'm going to actually tackle this from the editorial standpoint. I think in this particular instance, although it's a little further afield of um, communications, but I, I think it comes back to engagement is king for edit now. And, yep. and you know, for a while it was views. And digitally, it's transformed to engagement because that ultimately that's what matters. So yes, we are having tools that track what are what is the most interesting, what is the most popular, how long do they read, how long do they view a video, all of those things. Where can I put an, an ad? Is this the angle we take on that? Right? Do you have? Do you get, even get insight potentially into like secondary effects? Like you sit down, there's a story or there's an article about X. Yes, and, and then how you does see that changes trans- in consumer behavior of those people who actually read it? Exactly, and yeah. so. Um, or they, you know, or there are things that they would like to talk about that aren't super popular, but they need to hit traffic numbers. So if they, but they realize that if they write about hair, for example, like they'll get lots and lots, of, or celebrity, or any of those things get lots and lots, and the more serious topics then can be covered for a more niche audience who, but who will really dig deep. Gotcha. So, um, so all of those things I, I just put into this conversation because I think going back to that content yep. is core. What you need to understand is what hits, what yep. what messages the consumer wants to engage with, and I think one of the advantages we then have with our on behalf of our clients is that a lot of marketers are very good at trying to get a message across, but consumers don't always want to receive a message, right? And so we have a lot of experience in how to tell a story that people Actually, want yeah. to engage with, and so that you know what that communication is and how effective it is is beyond just marketing, I think, especially in this day and age with well, all the clutter. It's, it, it, first of all, as you can tell, I'm very interested in the hair stories, but um, <laughs> as it, I think it's the iteration and the agility there, right? Because you guys have the ability to test in each issue any, what works and, and what's with not each working. brand, and, too, and how unique, uh, you know, we see ourselves both as a collection of audiences and an entire yeah. audience. And I think that sometimes people forget about that. I think that there is. A, I was in a meeting internally one time. We were talking about one customer. This is just a few weeks ago, and uh, one of my colleagues said, "Well, that customer hasn't changed their their email template in like 15 years." And I kind of looked at that person. I said, "You do realize that's a very very big problem. They should be changing it every single month if they want it to be effective, right?" And so I think, and we'll get into a little bit, but the design thinking type approach starts to evolve into there of how do we actually drive from the consumer perspective. Yeah, I, I, I didn't want to go first because it's partially yeah. I've got a bit of a sales pitch on this topic, but <laughs> I'll, I'll start with where my head goes, and this is my economics background. I, I think one of the most misunderstood parts of, of the evolution of digital communication is the empowerment the consumer had on on the basis of knowledge. Yep. So it used to be that you know the, there was door-to-door vacuum cleaner salesmen, partially because their job was to educate and persuade, right? Yep. And because people didn't know about the latest in technology and they needed to understand why they had value and that was a true event and that experience, that one-on-one connection was real and it was needed. Now, we have so much access to information and access to products and understanding and you're constantly being bombarded by it. Brands, I think, have been somewhat slow to understand the shift of you no longer necessarily have to educate, but you now have to truly persuade in a very unique way. Mm-hmm. You should presume your consumer has some level of understanding of why your product is valuable, right? Yeah. People understand why Hallmark cards are valuable, understand why wealth management might be valuable, or they understand the different competitors and the different options you have in the magazine space, these kinds of things, but why should you um, subscribe to The New Yorker, right? Why should you make these different decisions? And, and I think uniquely, this is where digital communication has somewhat fallen 
down, specifically in digital channels, is how can you use those channels to persuade someone in a compelling way? Yeah. And I, it's partially why Hallmark Business Connections has been successful is because the Hallmark format is a very unique format to try to persuade someone to do something. When you put, uh, as an example, go back to my retail example, if you put a coupon or an offer inside of a Hallmark card, a consumer perceives it as a gift. Their likelihood to act yeah. on it is significantly higher, right? And okay, that's the magic of Hallmark. But I mean, that's the that's the whole point. It's all about persuasion and the ways that you do that. And sometimes digital channels, I think, we probably don't use them the way to the full effect that we can. But it can be hard to truly get the type of persuasive communication we want into those mess into the messaging that we put into those channels. It, it's always interesting. Well, it, yeah. you know, to the point. And Thomas, if you think about wealth, I was in a, a conversation recently with uh, with one of our clients. We were talking about wealth communications, and one of the things I suggested was. So think about a, a, a retail wealth statement. It's not very exciting. No. You got a 3% return. You know, it doesn't usually talk about goals. It doesn't talk about the things that potentially are relevant to the recipient. And so one of the things I suggested was, wouldn't it be interesting to show how this customer did compared to other customers of this advisor? <laughs> the gentleman jumped out of the seat and said, there is no way we would ever do that. And I challenged. I said, think about it. I said, what would happen if you did that? And he thought about it and he said, I get it. Right? Because if you got that communication that said you got a 3% return, and the average customer got a 5% return, you're picking up the phone, you're calling the advisor, and you say, what the hell is going on? Yeah, we won't use the right the language that's I probably the would use. Right. But that's, think <laughs> about that communication, because I would bet money that the result, the reason why that happened is because that advisor discussed strategies with you. Your strategy may be less risk adverse. And so that becomes a conversation where the advisor says, well, we talked about this. If you want to get that 5% return, we can do that. Here's what it's going to mean. That probably just became the best conversation that advisors had with a customer in years, yeah. right? And has a net promoter benefit because that customer is going to get off the phone and say, you know what? They listen to me. <laughs> I'm going to tell my friends they listen to me, right? Yeah, and this is, of course, an excellent example. But also what Maya mentioned, I think just, just the power of having the opportunity to, uh, to, to, to immediately see how communication is affecting the customer, right? Yep. What, what gets read, with what frequency, how long. It's, it's very, very interesting. And uh, you mentioned, of course, marketing has done already a, a lot of development. And I think we are now at an interesting point where marketing and communication also a little bit starts to merge. Because where you, uh, the, the ways you can use marketing tools to see whether a customer is coming again. You can flex the communication that you put there or the ad that you put there, which, is, uh, which gives you a, another opportunity, really, basically, to see how the client is reacting. Plus, you can, it's, it's very easy to, to, to change the content and uh, in a week find out whether the content, or in a day find out whether the content resonates or doesn't resonate, uh, which is, of course, incredibly powerful uh, in, in the marketing communication story journey to really reflect what the clients are looking for. Well, and I think that's what it comes down to. We're always telling stories, right? Because, and I think if you view it that way, communications become much more effective, and I think you know, that design thinking principle of doing it from the perspective of the consumer really has to be the leading factor. You know, at Broadridge, we are a B2B company, right? So people sometimes find it odd that we work with consumers, but we have to. Because often if I go in and talk to a client about what they're trying to achieve, there's a lot of operational talk that's going to happen. If I go and talk to the consumer of that customer, the client of that customer, and say, what are you trying to achieve? It's a much different story. And so I think that that insight really does drive behavior. Um, and drives a lot of information. And so, you know, one of the things that we do a lot of is we do a lot of usability testing and do a lot of more ethnographic type research. What's interesting to me is that we still have a lot of customers that, you know, do surveys and things like that where I don't necessarily know if the results are going to be what we expect them to be. Um, they tend to lead the questions to what we want.
Are you going out there and bringing in your customers and really listening and understanding how they use your services and the weirdness of the actual consumer? Are you guys doing things yeah, like that? I, I, yeah, and a couple different examples that, that I could share. I, in the labs that Hallmark has yeah. developed what we call Hallmark Labs, but it's in, it's in California, um, and it specifically is built to build leading edge consumer technology for all the business units of Hallmark, yeah. right, as, as an innovation center, which we found to be the best way to do it from a talent and capability perspective. But on the on as well as tools, it, Hallmark has, I think, long invested in these tools, but even more so now. So it, Hallmark for, forever is on cool hunting, right? It's just kind of an age-old uh, term in the, in the marketing space, but going out and trying to figure out what trends are going to be two to three years down the line for things, not don't not like products, like what's going to be a cool greeting card, but thinking like colors, mannerisms, expressions, right? These kinds of things that eventually become the artistic profile of what's going to go into the, in the product across all of Hallmark. It, what's gotten added onto that is a tremendous amount of data and predictive modeling. Yep. I wouldn't say it's AI yet because I don't want to leap to that, but it's right, it's on borderline AI, right? Yep. We're almost there. We're not yet intelligent, but we're somewhat automated. On behalf of our podcast team and all of our listeners, I'd like to thank Rob, Maya, Patrick, and Thomas for allowing us to listen in on this great roundtable discussion. I'm Matt Swain, and you've been listening to the Reimagining Communications podcast. If you like this episode and think someone else would too, please share it, leave a review, and don't forget to subscribe. To learn more about Broadridge, our insights, and our innovations, visit broadridge.com or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn.